Hi, I'm Sarah Kenna from Company Matters, Link Group's company secretarial and corporate governance team. We're also the team behind AHEAD, a community for governance professionals to discover new trends and ideas, discuss industry issues and connect with like-minded people. In this episode, we're going to play back highlights from our recent event where guest speaker Blair Palmer spoke about what it takes to become more effective as a leader. This was also our first event to take place with a live audience, so you can expect some top-caliber insights from everyone involved. If you'd like to learn more about future events and join in, I'll leave a link in the description. I'm now going to hit play so you can listen back to the main event. Enjoy! Thanks everybody and hello to all the people at home uh, or wherever it is that you're joining here from. Now we've all got ourselves all dressed up. I'm imagining the people at home are sitting there in their pyjamas and their slippers. That's quite nice, isn't it? Um, But yes, I want to talk today about the future. That's what we're going to be focusing on. But I want to start by going back, back a little bit into the past. The year 1978. The year that Sony released the Walkman. Anyone remember the original Walkman? Uh, the year that the first IVF baby was born. And the year that the Sex Pistols played live for the last time. Do we have any aging punks in the room? Yes, banter. I knew we would. I knew we would. I'm one as well. But I don't remember too much about what went on in 1978 because I was eight years old in 1978. But I do remember some films that came out in that year because, oh, this is me, by the way. Uh, this is, I don't know if you can see it online, but I'm the one wearing my cardigan as a cape in the front row for, I'll come back to why that might be in a moment. There were some fantastic films out in 1978. And it was one of these films that gave me my first grown-up career ambition. Now, before I tell you a bit more about that, I'm just really curious. When you were eight years old, what did you want to be when you grew up? Uh, astronaut, I think. An astronaut? How's that, how's that going? Uh, yeah, working on my way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's never too late, right? What about you, Georgina? I wanted to be a spy. A spy? <laughs> well, I can't even ask you if, no. you, if that worked out. So maybe that is what you're doing. Oh, we will bye. never know. <laughs> and what did you want to be, Sarah? Um, I wanted to be an actress. An actress? And do you still do any yeah, acting? I, I act part-time. Well, there we go. Acting part-time. So, fantastic. Well done. Now, this is interesting, right, because these are... Real job. I'm spies a little bit uh, <laughs> off the rails, but these are real jobs. So, until I was uh, eight years old, I wanted to be either a tightrope walker or a princess. That, that's what I had in mind. But then I saw this film and I knew exactly what I wanted to be when I grew up. Now, there are lots of brilliant films out in 1978. Star Wars was still, the original Star Wars was still in the cinemas. It had come out the year before. Do we have any Star Wars fans here? Oh, me, yeah. me, me. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. All right, so that film was out, was still in the cinemas in 1978. Greece was in the cinemas in 1978. That's why I'm wearing my cardigan like that. I wanted to be one of the pink ladies, obviously. Um, there were some more grown-up films. Dawn of the Dead was out that year. Deer Hunter was out that year. But the film that came out in 1978 that gave me my first grown-up career ambition was Superman. Now... I didn't want to be Superman himself. I didn't want to be the bad Elex Luthor. I wanted to be Lois Lane. The hard-hitting, feisty journalist working for the Daily Planet who also happened to be Superman's on-off girlfriend. And that seemed like the perfect grown-up career ambition for me. So we fast-forward about 20 years, and sure enough, I'm a journalist, and I'm a producer at the BBC, producing the Today programme on Radio 4. I don't know if we have any people here or online that listen to Radio 4 in the morning. Does it ruin your day on the way in? You really enjoy it? Brilliant. Well, I'm going to tell you some stuff about that show in a moment. So I was broadcasting 6 million listeners every morning, setting the news agenda for a nation. But it wasn't exactly like working at the Daily Planet. So on this particular day, I was trying to find the, the job of a, journal, of a reporter or a, a producer on a program like today is, to, is you're a journalist. So you're finding news stories and you're finding people to come on the air and talk about those news stories. Basically, be ripped to shreds by John Humphreys you know, and Jim Nockerty on the days when I was doing it. So on this particular day, all the stories I was researching turned out to be untrue. Now, this might come as a shock to some of you. But not everything that's in the newspapers is 100% accurate. 
And I was finding that out for myself. We, we, the stories were in the newspapers. I was meant to be finding people to come on and talk about these stories. And when I spoke to them, they said, I never spoke to that newspaper. That story is not true. I'm not coming on the air. But I was young. And so I was relatively philosophical. And I thought, well, that's okay. The last thing the BBC wants to do is to perpetuate untrue stories. Because obviously, that never happens. So I went to see my editor. And I told him I had no guests for the next day's three-hour live show. He was not as philosophical as me. <laughs> and he sent me out of his office into the newsroom in a rage, but not before sticking a post-it to my back. <laughs> and the post-it read, I am Satan's mistress. And I was told not to take the post-it off until I had found a guest for the next day's show. Now, what do you think I did? Did I confront him with every little bit of Lois Lane? that was coursing through my veins? No, I didn't. Did I go off to HR and explain about the abuse I was experiencing at the hands of this man? No. Did I go to the ladies' toilets, lock myself in a cubicle and have a little cry? Yes, that's exactly what I did. And then I came back out. I mean, I wasn't the only one in there. Right. There was a girl in the next cubicle as well having a little tearful moment. Then I came out, and somehow I found a guest for the next day's show. I, I fronted into it. And, I, you know, there's a way that you do it, which is basically you say, listen, you've been taken out of context in the newspapers. You've been misquoted. Come on our, our live program. You can't be taken out of context. You can set the record straight. What you don't tell them is, we're going to take a little tiny clip of something you probably shouldn't have said. We're going to run those in the news bulletins for the rest of the day. So that's what I did. Now, why am I telling you this story? Well, firstly, some people love the show and are interested in what happens behind the scenes. So, now you know. It was more than 20 years ago, so it might have changed now. But more importantly, in that moment, something in me died. My love of doing that job in that place was killed by the behavior of the leader of our program. And I became fascinated from that point in leadership and how leaders can create organizations that instead of suffocating people and their ideas, allow people and their ideas to thrive. And so that's what I've been doing for the last 22 years, coaching, provoking, challenging leaders to, to work out how to drive their organizations forward to thrive in a fast-changing world. Because, I mean, the times are changing really fast, right? Social change, political change, cultural change, technological change, sweeping through our world more quickly than ever before. And that's not even taking into account the last two years of the pandemic, which has vastly changed our world yet again. It's like we've been through a wormhole. So some of the stuff I was talking about two, three years ago on stage that I was saying, this stuff's coming, folks, you know, in the next five to ten years, it's now here now. So we've been through this wormhole in a very different place. And consequently, we need to change as leaders. You know, when the context in which your organization operates change, changes, you have to change the organization. You have to. And then if you're going to change the organization, you have to change. You have to change how you lead because people are different and what they need is different. So what we're going to do today, I'm going to start by sharing some of the major trends that are going on that are impacting how we work and therefore how we lead. I'm then going to share with you my definition of leadership because I keep talking about leadership and uh, I haven't actually explained what I mean. Then I'm going to bust four myths. Four myths of leadership which, even if they were ever true, certainly aren't true today. And by the end, when we get into the Q&A, I hope that you've got some interesting questions, maybe some answers of your own about what it means to lead in the 21st century. So... Let's begin with some of, these, uh, some of these trends. Hybrid working. I mean, here we are. The first hybrid event of yep. this kind for you guys? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, it is for me too. So the last in-person, I've worked with clients in person since uh, during the pandemic, but the last in-person presentation I gave was more than two years ago, March 2020, as it would have been for most people. Um, since then, it's all been online, and now here we are hybrid. And hybrid is impacting our world hugely. 82% of employers say they're planning on continuing some sort of remote or hybrid working 
from this point on, you know, what we call post-pandemic, even though we know it's not quite post-pandemic. 90% of your Generation Ys and Generation Zs say that they have no intention of returning to the office full-time. However, that same community say they feel excluded, they feel disengaged, they don't feel excited about their work, they don't feel that they can participate in meetings, and they don't feel that they can get their ideas in front of senior people. So there's a problem. We love the opportunity to work remotely, and there are huge benefits in terms of productivity and people being able to balance their lives and you know, be in their own space, be able to think, etc. But then we're also really missing out. And how do we work that out? And the bottom line is that any organization that tells you, oh, yeah, we figured it out. We have these teams come in these three days and then they work at home, these two, etc. I've seen so much of that. They're kidding themselves. Because we are right at the beginning of a revolution in how we work and how we get the best out of our people. And the industrial age was invented 250 years ago. And there's no way that those early industrialists could have anticipated how we were working, you know, two or three years ago, let alone how we work today. You know, Isambard Kingdom Brunel didn't sit atop one of his bridges thinking, hmm, Taco Tuesdays, good idea. <laughs> he couldn't possibly have anticipated what would, what would happen. And we're right at the beginning of a similar journey. So any organization that tells you that, you've got, that, that they've worked it out is fooling themselves. We need to remain curious. We need to be living an experiment right now. Where we say, all right, listen, we've got to start somewhere. Let's do it like this, and then let's see how it works. Are people able to do their best work? That's, that's the measure. And we keep tweaking and refining. We're building the plane in the air. It's the Wild West. We keep tweaking and refining. And we don't settle on, just because it's convenient, a simple process like, well, three days out of five you come in and then the other two days you work from home and these teams do Monday to Wednesday and these teams do Tuesday to Thursday. Because that it might be a place to start, but it's certainly not a place to end. Next uh, big trend is bots and AI. It's predicted that in the, in the next 10 years, half of the jobs that are currently done by human beings will be done by bots or some form of AI. Now, there's concern about will there be enough jobs to go around. I think there'll be plenty of jobs to go around, but the jobs that will be for our human workforce will be those that require innately human qualities. And therefore, as leaders, we have got to create environments that allow people to bring their humanity. Because the industrial age was very much about treating people like machines. You know, time and motion studies. That was, that was what I heard about when I was studying at university, time and motion studies. We don't do that anymore. We don't need to treat people like that. We need their humanity. We need their empathy, their ability to connect, their ability to read between the lines, their ability to innovate and create and iterate. We don't need them to do jobs that AI and bots can do better, which is the logical thinking. And human beings are not able to leave their emotions at the door. They say they can. Oh, yes, I just switch that off. I, you know, I just read the numbers and I let the numbers tell me. No. We search for the answers in the number that reinforce what we already think. That's right? what human beings are like. So let's let the AI and bots do that. But then as an organization, we've got to create environments that allow for the messy edges of human beings. Because that's the only way that we will get their humanity to come and enhance the work. Next, uh, next trend is around generations. Now, we're working longer. Okay? So we might have retired in the past, even in our 50s, certainly by 60, 65. Now people are expected to work longer. So you've got more generations in a workforce working side by side. But in addition, the generations are getting narrower. So you know, it might have taken 20 years to change generations in the past. Now it's more like 10. So let me do a little experiment, and I'd like to ask the people online as well. I'm just curious about who we have. So um, uh, baby boomers, do we have anyone born 1965 or earlier who doesn't mind admitting? Hi. Great. And online, I don't know if people are able to say that they might oh, not want to. Oh, shy. <laughs> they might not I want to. I promise not to reveal your age. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've put their, put their age on the internet. Um, all right, yes, fantastic. So we've, we've got some baby boomers in our workforce. 
What about Gen X? This is my generation, uh, 1966 to about 1979. Anyone born then? Yeah, that's kind of the majority at the moment of people in senior roles. Uh, have we got any uh, millennials or um, what, what's also called Gen Y? So that would be like 1980 to about 1996. Yes, right? So when I first started speaking about this, you guys were all at school. <laughs> and now here you are in senior roles. Now, here's the question. Do we have any Gen Zs or I generation, they're also called? Yes, people born after 1996. Right, so this is starting to happen now. Okay. And these generations bring different values and different sensitivities. Now, let's not generalize. Okay? They're also human beings. You're a human being. <laughs> so I, you don't represent all I generations in the world. But let me tell you a little bit about these, these Gen Zs. So, uh, oh yeah, here we go. Uh, right, yes. Six second attention span. Sorry. Six second attention span. Uh, why is that? That's about the same as goldfish, right? Well, why? Because they have grown up in a world where they are absolutely swamped with information. And if they are paid attention to all of it, they would be completely overwhelmed. So what that six-second six attention span is, is we've got six seconds to grab their attention. If we do, they're in. I mean, they can dive deep for sure. But if we've lost them in six seconds, they've moved on because they have to. Just got it because there's too much information. They are brilliant brand managers. They've been managing their brand their whole lives. They've lived in a world that has only ever had social media. And we can use that. I mean, what a fantastic skill, quality, awareness that is to have in our organizations when so much happens online. 79% of them experience stress when they're separated from their device. Now, I don't think this is just the I generation. I feel stressed. My phone is over there. I won't go further away from it than that. We, feel ex we, we experience that. They notice diversity only when it isn't there. So if you are sitting on a board that is primarily white, middle-class, middle-aged men, they will notice that. Not only that, but they will be outspoken about it. So this is a generation that were hard hit by COVID. Their education was disrupted. Some of them didn't get the education that they had hoped to have because of COVID. And a huge proportion of them grew up in households that were financially hit by COVID. Either their, their parents or carers lost their jobs or there were financial constraints as a result of the pandemic. So these are forming, they form their character just as 9-11 will have formed the, the millennials' character, right? And the, the um, winter of discontent formed the generation uh, X, okay? So this is a generation that are outspoken. They've always had a megaphone. They're not afraid to use it. And they will call out unethical or intolerant behavior. So in the past, you might have had your company AGM or your town hall and you might have said or somebody might have said a few saucy or inappropriate things and didn't leave the room. Now they will have recorded that and they will be putting it on Twitter. This is being recorded today, isn't yes, it? indeed. Yeah, people can watch it over and over. If I say something that I shouldn't, that's going to end up on Twitter. And that's not to scare anybody. That's to make you super aware. I don't think of this generation as woke. I don't like that term. I think of them as really tuned in to today's sensitivities and intolerant of behavior that the post-it on the back stuff that I was tolerating in the 80s and 90s. They won't put up with it anymore. And so they are a really good measure of the standards that we're holding ourselves to in our organization. And rather than being scared, we should be listening to them and understanding how is the world changing and how is some of the stuff that was okay even five years ago not okay and for very good reason today. And the final trend that I want to talk to you about is called teal. I wonder if anyone here, does anyone here work in an organization that is um, flat, non-hierarchical? No. So these are, do you know about them? Non-hierarchical, um, self-managing organizations. Have you heard of them? No. So some of you have, they're called TEAL. There's a certain type of, of um, self-managing organization called Holacracy, various different models. But the idea is we don't have the normal hierarchy. 
Now, most organizations are stripping out layers of hierarchy, but this is more than that. Each individual has a very clear role or set of roles, and they have decision-making accountability that goes with that role. So they are the decision-maker for that set of decisions. They do not need to get buy-in. They do not need to get alignment. They don't need to seek consensus. It's not the majority rules. It's very, very slow and doesn't always end up with a great result, great outcome. They do have to seek input and advice. How is the decision that I'm thinking of making going to impact other roles in this organization? What is the expertise that's out there that I need so I can make a really solid decision? But in the end, I'm going to make the decision. I'm going to sit with that. I'm going to live or die by it, and I'll be responsible for the outcomes as well and fixing it if it goes wrong. This is a really different vibe. And if you think about it, there's... Yes, yes, sir. They have job titles, but they wouldn't have a manager job title because there are no people managers. You might manage a project, you might manage a thing, but you wouldn't manage people. And so in organizations where they've done this, they have to do it overnight because you can't kind of creep up on it. So they, they plan it in advance, and then they say, Zappos is an example, which is an American company. Um, I think it's been bought by Amazon now, but they used to be a company that sold shoes online. And they decided to go uh, flat, to go teal, and they, they gave people a payoff. If you don't want to be part of it, that's fine. We'll give you some money and you can go and find a job elsewhere. If you do want to be part of it and you come in on Monday, you've got to work out what your job is. And so you had all these managers coming in saying, I don't actually know how I add value if it isn't supervising the work of other people. I've got to now figure that out. Yes. They might do. So, yeah. So, ju just for those of you listening who might not have been able to hear, how does that work in terms of compensation and, and promotion and all that kind of thing? So, of course, there are jobs that have more or less um, um, seniority in a sense. So, I mean, you might still have uh, somebody who um, uh, has 30 years of experience and their role takes that into account. They're not still doing spreadsheets necessarily, right? Um, and you'd have roles that are much more suited to new intake and therefore, they have less authority in the organization. They're just carrying less of a load. And so the compensation would be reflected in that. It's not, it's not communism, right? It's not like everyone earns the same and everyone um, has the same jobs. So it's, it still changes. And of course, you can still move around the organization. But they just don't think of it as moving up, right? They still have teams, in a sense, but they have sort of circles. So you're pulling together the people that you need in order to make really solid, so you can make a really solid decision, or so you can enhance someone else's decision. But in the end, it's theirs. They, they don't have to persuade you that they're right. They just have to take into account the expertise that you bring. It's fascinating. There's a really good book called uh, Reinventing Organizations by a guy called Frederick Leloux. Really encourage you to read it if you're interested in this. Even if you have no intention of going teal yourself, there's some really interesting stuff there about how do we genuinely empower. People can only be empowered to the extent that you're willing to give away power. You can't hold on to the power and give it away. And, and that's a really interesting way to start thinking about things. And what's, of course, very important is if there are no managers, then it becomes really important to understand what a leader is. We still have leadership. And that's another reason why I think it's really important for you guys, because even if no intention of going teal, organizations are becoming less hierarchical. And we want those ideas that are coming all throughout the organization, something I'll come back to in a minute. So these are some of the major trends that are going on right now that then require you rethinking, how am I leading? And that's apart from any disruption that's going on in your own industry. Okay. So I keep talking about leadership and that it's not management and all of that. So why don't I spend a minute telling you about that? So this is me, by the way, wanting to be a tightrope walker. Um, right. There are, I just checked this morning, more than 60,000 paperback books on the subject of leadership on Amazon.com of which I looked at how many were published in the last 30 days. More than 2,000 published in the last 30 days. So no surprise that people are confused about what it is to be a leader. And they're all telling you something different. You've got the rules of leadership, the laws of leadership. 
You've got stuff about the monkey in the brain. Do you remember that? Back in 2012, everyone's got a monkey in their brain. They're not going to win the cycling unless they tame the monkey. Um, when I was becoming a coach back in 2000, it was all about the coach, the leader as coach. There's still lots of books about that now. Books about uh, feedback. Tons of books about feedback. Why? Because we all hate giving feedback, don't we? It's awkward. <laughs> So what do we do? Well, we've got to give someone some performance feedback. We get them into our office, but just before they come in, we find a book. Oh, I'll use a technique. I'll use a feedback technique from the book. Sit them down, nice comfy chair, cup of tea, box of tissues, just in case this all goes wrong. And then you're going to use a technique. So how about you use the jam sandwich? You familiar with that? I know it's not always called the jam sandwich. I don't know you well enough to say what it's really called, and I might be on Twitter later if I do say. So here's how the jam sandwich works. Get them into your office, tell them something really nice about themselves. Make them feel safe. Then you tell them what you really think, and then you tell them something really, really nice. And you get them out of your office as quickly as possible, so they're very far away when they (laughs) clock what it was that you were actually trying to tell them. And this isn't anything new. This was used on me when I was at school. I've got my school report here. Um, And this is my report for PE, not my best subject. And uh, my teacher wrote, she was using the jam sandwich. Although Blair is always willing to have a go, that's the bread. Although Blair is always willing to have a go, she does like all the techniques required in the gym. A little more confidence might help. Well, I very much doubt it. And in fact, I knew at the time, I was 14, but I knew at the time that that was not a good, a good report for PE. Your people will know the jam sandwich. They'll see it a mile off, right? So I'm not a big fan of the jam sandwich, but I'm a big fan of feedback. Massive fan of giving feedback and receiving feedback as well. I am a coach, so of course I'm a a fan of coaching, and I'm pretty sure I've got a monkey in my brain. So there's nothing wrong with the stuff that's in the books, but there's too many of them. And if we could distill it all down into a to-do list of things you could do every day, would that make you a great leader? I don't think so. Because I don't think that leadership is about what you do. I think leadership's about who you are. And who you are needs to change compared with who you needed to be 10, 15, 20 years ago. But that's not even much of a definition. Okay, fine. So, great. Leadership is about who you are. Thanks very much. Now let's take some questions. No. I think we can be more clear, particularly about the distinction between management and leadership. So, uh, these books take a lot of time, page after page. I've written some books of my own. I've spent chapters trying to explain what leadership is, but I've distilled it down now into something less than two minutes. So, can someone time me? I don't want to waste any of your time. Has anyone got a phone or a... Yes, Sarah? Okay, so... The distinction between management and leadership in two minutes. Okay, starting now. Managers make the best of what they've got. I've got two minutes, so I'll explain what I mean. Managers have these people, and they have these targets. And their job is to get these people to deliver these targets. So, it's the Monday morning meeting where you set the agenda for the week. It's the supervision of people through the week as they're doing the tasks. It's even the coaching of people to a certain extent because you're making the best of what you've got. You're trying to bring out their best. It's the stuff that keeps the show on the road. Not in a self-managing organization, obviously, but they're constructed differently. But in most organizations, management keeps the show on the road. It's delivering on promises that you've already made. And now we have to deliver, and that's management. But it's not leadership. Leaders look at what is and what could be, and then they disrupt the status quo to bring about change. So leadership is fundamentally about change. Now, why do we need leaders for change? And why can't we just manage? We hear a lot about change management. Why can't we just manage change? Because change hurts. We all know that. And it doesn't matter how glorious the destination that you've painted for people, they will not go through that pain unless they feel that it's led. So, is that less than two minutes? Yeah. Great. All right. How, how long was it, by the way? Um, just under. Oh, just under. Oh, I talked slowly. <laughs> All right. So, leadership is about change because change hurts. 
Now, this isn't a particularly new distinction. In fact, one of my all-time heroes, John Harvey Jones, I don't know if any of you remember him. He was the former chairman of ICI, comb over Kipper Tai, had a show on TV called Troubleshooter, really fascinating guy. He wrote lots of books in the 80s about management and leadership. And he said back then, he was way ahead of his time, the job of leadership is to maintain the highest pace of change that the organization and the people within it can stand. The highest pace of change they can stand. And, of course, that was in the 80s. He couldn't possibly have anticipated the pace of change that we have today. So that is fundamentally what leadership is about. And as I said, that is, all comes from who you are. Now, by the way, there's a couple of different kinds of leadership. There's the leader-follower model. Very often people say, well, you're a leader if people are following. But what if that leader's walking people off a cliff? Is that, we've seen a lot of that kind of leadership before. I'm talking about leadership that creates more leadership. Leadership that gets other people, that makes it safe for other people to step up and come up with ideas and say, I'll take that on board. I'll, I'll drive that. That's the kind of leadership that we are looking for today. And in order to be that kind of leader, we need to bust a few myths. And I think the sorts of roles that you have in your organizations, this is critical to understand this because you might have thought to yourself, well, I'm not really a leader. I mean, I sit with all the leaders, but I'm not a leader because what I think a leader looks like isn't this thing that I'm doing and this way that I'm being. And what I want to tell you is that is shifting. So what we associated with leadership in the past is no longer what people are looking for or perceiving as leadership today. And it's much more likely that they will be looking to you for the sorts of leadership that, that they really need and that really brings out their best than some of these more conventional ideas about leadership. There's a great opportunity for you. So, myth number one. The myth that you're the leader because of your job title. Well, the authority to lead doesn't come with your job title. The authority to lead comes from people trusting you. They decide whether you're a leader or not, not you. And that's where we have a bit of a problem because they will only see you as a leader if they trust you. And we've got a big problem with trust in the world right now, particularly trust in authority figures. So there's a report that comes out every year called the Edelman Trust Barometer. And this year, I've got the, the stats here. This year, the title is, of the report is The Cycle of Distrust uplifting, isn't it? Cycle of distrust. Trust in business is declining. Currently, globally, 61% of people trust business, which isn't good, but I mean, it's actually better than the trust levels for government, media, and NGOs. Fake news is people's biggest issue right now. In the UK, 65% of people are wary of false information being used as a weapon. We've heard about this, haven't we? Fake news being weaponized. 63% of people believe that business leaders are intentionally trying to mislead them. And it's about the same for politicians, by the way, 64%, I think. 52% of people believe that capitalism as it stands does more harm than good. It's massive, 52%. But who do people trust? They trust their own CEO, their co-workers, the people that they see, proximity equals trust. The only people they trust more than that actually are scientists. It's really important then as a leader, how do I get close to my people? How do I close that proximity gap? Because if I'm a distant figure, I'm just a statistic. They're not going to trust me. And if they don't trust me, they're not going anywhere with me. I think that corporate governance sits right at the heart of this. I mean, you are the guardians of the ethical standards and behaviors of the organization. That's all the attention on that is, is your job. And so if it's important that we hold people to high standards, that we are ethical, that we can be trusted, then no one senses that and has the information in front of them more than you guys. I think this is one of the reasons why you are perfectly placed. But how do we generate trust? Well, I think there's two elements to this. The first is being trustworthy, and the second is being willing to trust. 
So the trustworthiness actually has two aspects. The first is knowing what you stand for and then standing for it. So you have to know what you stand for first, but then you have to stand for it. And that might sound easy. It might, you might think, oh, I do that. But who of us has not been in a meeting where we've not liked the way the conversation's going? We don't like the decision that seems inevitable. We're just about to put our hand up to say something about it when a little voice in our head says, don't. Don't. Everyone else seems all right with it. Who are you to disrupt you know, the nice feeling in the room. If I was going to say something, I should have said something earlier. Um, we're just about to break for lunch. No one's going to appreciate me throwing a spanner in the works at this point. Or my favorite reason for not saying anything, I'll save that for something more important. But every time you do that, anything you said to anyone outside of the meeting that was important to you, that you didn't stand for in the meeting reinforces what they already believed, which is that you can't be trusted. No wonder, right? You said something, you did something different. Now, I'm not saying you need to win every argument or that you need to put your career on the line for every opinion that you have, but if you're not even willing to put it on the table, having said it was important to you, then how can you expect people to trust you? So that's the first aspect. The second aspect of... Uh, being trustworthy is what we call intimacy. It's something that you and I have been talking about this morning. Your willingness to make authentic human connections with other people. And in order to do that, you have to reveal who you are. You have to show your vulnerabilities. You have to show if you don't know all the answers. You have to show if you're struggling with something today. You don't have to be a mess. <laughs> but you do have to show up as an authentic human being. Because if you're not willing to reveal who you are behind the mask, people will not reveal who they are. I did some work with Google a little while ago on TMI, too much information. And it turns out people are more likely to tell their boss about their unsuccessful one-night stands than they are to share their ideas about how to make the organization better. Why? Because they don't really trust that the information is going to land well when they have an idea. So it's absolutely essential. If you want them to open up to you, you've got to reveal some of the messiness inside. And that is uncomfortable. That re actually requires bravery, both of these things. It's not easy to do because we've been conditioned to be very polished and, you know, we put on our suit in the morning, we go in, and this is what... They, no one wants that anymore. We don't trust that. We're very, we're very cynical about that. We've seen too much of it. So you have to reveal who you are. So that's being trustworthy. On the other hand, you've got to be willing to trust. And the question that you need to be asking is, what are the limits that I put on my willingness to trust? So I trust my team, but I mean, if they can't make a decision, I'll step in, make the decision for them. I trust my team, but if they're making a decision that's not the decision I would have made, I'm going to go back in and just oh, guide them in the right direction. I trust my team, you know, with the finances of the business, but up to £1,000. Any more than that, they really need to come and get some sign-off. These are all limits that you put on your willingness to trust. And where you put the, willing, the limit on the willingness to trust them, they're putting the, the limit on the willingness to trust you. So it has to start with you. Where am I putting that limit, and how do I push back those limits and start to really trust people to be adults. They're making adult decisions out there in the world all the time. They're buying houses and having babies and going on holiday and getting new jobs. We have to trust them to make adult decisions here in the organization. And when we start doing that, then they will start to trust us. If you're not willing to trust, then people will not see you as a leader. And if they don't see you as a leader, they're not going where you're going. So that's myth number one. Myth number two, I am a leader because I have the most seniority. I've been here the longest. I've got the most experience. I'm the leader. Well, we know that that's not true. One of the greatest things that I discovered when I started coaching leaders 20 years ago is that they were all waiting to be found out. I found it very reassuring because, of course, I was waiting to be found out as well. This idea of imposter syndrome is well known now, but 20 years ago it was a big revelation to me and very reassuring. We're all, being, we're all waiting to be found out. But more than that, we don't all have the right answers. You know, we, we come from industrial past. The, the way that organizations are, are organized is from the industrial age. 
people coming from the towns and cities, uh, from, from the countryside into the towns and cities to work in the factories and the sort of related industries. And they start getting paid an hourly wage, a weekly wage. I, when I was at the BBC, I was a staff employee. They couldn't have got rid of me. They were just lucky that I left of my own accord. So we get some security, and that allows us to move up Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You're familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So we go from basic needs around safety and security, some needs around status and worth. And we're looking for that from our organization. So every time we get a bonus, a pay rise, a promotion, we get more status and we can say in our world, you know, I've got a better car than my neighbor and we were able to go on a foreign holiday. And all of that is giving us status and that's what matters in the industrial age. And organizations were organized to perpetuate that. So I will do what I'm told by my boss because my boss has told me. And my people will do what I told them to do because I'm their boss. And one day, I'll be the big boss and I'll be able to tell everybody what to do. It's quite a happy dance between employee and employer. But we're not in the industrial age anymore. So I asked you before what you wanted to be when you were eight. Why do you do what you do now? Oh, a big philosophical question. <laughs> What's it um, about? Uh, I'm going to say a journey. So, um, opportunity, circumstance, things that I've been interested in. Um, so, yeah, a path. That yeah, it's traveled. a path. Just for those of you online, it's a path, a journey. This is so something you're really interested in, and you want to dive deeper and deeper and get better and better. Personal reward and growth. Yeah. Yeah, but from an, not, not necessarily financial reward. It's not oh. the main driver, right? right. I mean, it might be, uh, but I don't think it is for most people here. What about you, Georgina? Why do you do what you do? Yeah, very similar. Um, definitely the area that I work in is something that really interested me from when I was at school, mm. um, being in marketing, having the creative aspect, but also other many different aspects Yeah. interested me. Yeah. So again, interests you, it's got meaning to you, it's creative, ideas, you can bring your, who you are to your work. Guys online, do add in here why you do what you do. What is the motivator? You know, it doesn't matter what audience I talk to, there are always, everybody in the audience, doesn't matter, you know, financial services to being a teacher, it's all answers like this. So do please share. Why do you do what you do? Dig deep and really work it out. Beyond the salary and, you know, the security, what else is the driver? And there's a reason why we get answers like this now that we might not have had 15, 20 years ago. You know, I, I think about my grandma who, you know, she, she's passed away now, but she lived until she was 99. And I could Skype her. We could have a conversation in per like, this was amazing to her, to imagine a life where I could Skype. She lived in Canada. I could Skype her and we could have a real conversation in real time and actually see each other. We can pause live TV. Pause live TV! I, I was um, talking to a client that I, that I coached and he said his mom, his elderly mum finally got, you know, the pause live TV during the pandemic. And um, she was like, oh, this is marvellous. So I can be watching my programme. And then when, when I want to go and make a cup of tea, I can just pause the program, go make my cup of tea, and then I come back and just press play. He said, yeah, that's, it's amazing, isn't it? Mom? She said, yeah, marvellous what they can do today with the technology. Just one question, dear. Um, while I've got EastEnders paused, um, what will the rest of the country be doing? So <laughs> when she paused, everyone's paused. So, <laughs> the world has changed massively. We moved up Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yes, we still want the status and, and, and to feel like what we're doing is worthwhile. But now, self-actualization. We want to partner. We want to co-create. We want to, to collaborate. We do not want to be told what to do by somebody just because they've been there 10 years longer than us, and nor do the people that, that we work with. So we have to rethink. What are the skills that we now need to gather a group of self-actualized people who are driven by their values and their beliefs? How do we get those people to come with us on a journey? Well, firstly, actually, let's do a little experiment. This is where we're going to do a little experiment. So what I want you to do is I want you to pair up. You just turn to a person behind you if you're not next to anybody. Georgina's got special instructions. 
Um, so pair up, decide who is going to be A and who is going to be B, all right? Those of you online, you are B, all right? So you're the Bs in this exercise. So listen out for those instructions. So who's going to be A and who's going to be B? You just decide between you. Brian, who's I'll pair up with you, Brian. <laughs> okay, Georgina's going to come stand here. She's A for the people at home. Have you decided who's A and who's B? Okay, A's, the A's in the room. I want you to imagine that you have a slightly unpleasant medical condition. Nothing too disgusting, uh, just something that, you know, you could go to the pharmacist and get some tablets or some cream for. So I want you to picture this slightly unpleasant medical condition in your mind. Bs. So people at home, you're concentrating on Georgina. The Bs in this room, you're thinking about the A that you're in a partnership with. I want you to concentrate really, really hard. And I want you to just see if, with the power of the mind, you can guess what A is thinking about. Now, there's a few rules. There's no talking, because it's just using the power of the mind. Right? Power of the mind. A is trying to transmit it to B. B is trying to receive it. Please don't touch anybody. Uh, there's still a pandemic, and also they've got a condition, so you might not want to. And you don't need to act it out. It's just, it's just the power of the mind, folks. Okay, so I'll give you a few seconds, starting from now. Would any you can sit back down? Thank you. Would any of the bees? I don't want to hear what it is. But any of them believe that they know from the power of the mind what it was that A was thinking of? Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, that's very unusual. So apart from you, would anyone bet their house? Would you bet your house? No. no. Bet your house on knowing? No, of course you wouldn't, because. We're not mind readers. That was the point of the exercise. Well done, folks. Uh, if anyone did guess what Georgina was thinking about, you can tell me offline. So we're not mind readers. And yet, in a lot of organizations that are very hierarchical, obsessed with seniority, you get a lot of this A's and B's behavior. So what you get is often senior people believing that they are mind readers, that they just know what's best for their people. They know what's going on with their people. They know what their people are thinking, what their people are struggling with, why their people operate the way they do, why they you know, do stupid things and you know, make bad decisions. They just know they don't need to ask. Meanwhile, you also have people behaving like the B's, but, but like the A's rather. They've got something on their mind, but they're not going to tell you what it is. They just expect you to know. This is what is created in these hierarchical organizations where people are too afraid to share what's really going on for them. So what are the skills that you need as a leader today? Well, it's a bit of a cliche, but the first one is you need to listen. There's a power gradient. You guys are at the top of it, or towards the top of it. So no matter how much you say, my door's always open, I'm really, just tell me what you think. They're at the bottom of the power gradient. It's much more risky for them to be open with you than it is for you to be open for them. You've got their future in your hands. So you need to really, really listen. Now, there's lots of different kinds of listening. There's, you know, active listening, and you mirror back, and you really heard them. There's listening where basically you're just quiet while they talk, and then you say what you were going to say anyway. Um, but I'm talking about something else. I'm talking about listening so hard to people that you might change your mind. Listening that hard. That you might change your mind. So firstly, we've got to be really willing to listen. Not to persuade, but to change our own minds. And secondly, we've got to be willing to stand up and speak out. You guys have all got to be willing sometimes to be the maverick in the organization. To sit with the discomfort of saying the uncomfortable truth. Of calling people out on behavior. You know, I sometimes say, when people say, well, how, how do I know if you know my behavior is okay? Would you like it to be on the front pages of the newspaper? Would you mind if your mum knew about it? <laughs> These are two really good tests. But in the organization, you can be the monitor of that. Is what we're doing here okay? Or would we be ashamed if people knew about what we were doing? 
And that's when you have to speak out. And there is some discomfort. I talked before about bravery. There is some discomfort about that. And you won't always be the most liked person. But if you wanted to lead because you wanted to be liked, you're going to be disappointed in any case. What are you really there to do? You're there to hold the organization to account. And that means speaking out and not expecting people to mind read you. Third myth. The myth that I'm a leader because I've got a big team. People are always telling me how big their team is. Bigger the team, the more of a leader I am. Well, no, not necessarily. There's, there is an issue with teams, and we love being in teams. Anyone here been on like team development or team away days, done some fun stuff? Yeah. We used to do this at the BBC quite a lot. We did one where we were taken away uh, for a couple of days with a facilitator, and we had to do a self-assessment. The self-assessment would say what our personality was like an animal. So are you more like a, you know, like a tiger or an eagle or whatever? And she said, don't worry fox. what the result is. I was a fox. Fox? Brilliant. Although I wanted to be a dolphin. You wanted, well, of course, everyone wants to be a dolphin. That's the best animal. I mean, that's, she said to us, there are no better or worse animals. But we know there are better animals. Dolphin's one of the best ones. So we went away. My boss, was the post-it guy, he was told he was a lion. He was pleased with that, and we were not surprised. <laughs> The guy sitting next to me was told he was a horse. He also seemed pretty chuffed. I don't quite know why. Um, and I was told I was a monkey. And I was a bit disappointed. I wanted to be something better than a monkey, like a dolphin. Uh, but he, she said, listen, two things. Firstly, at least you're not a rat like that girl. I mean, even she knew that there were like, better and worse animals. Um, but she also said, no one's allowed to tell you to tidy your desk because it will inhibit your simian creativity. So I loved that. We love the teams. They make us feel like we belong. It's a nice, cozy family away from home. But there's a problem. Teams can create silos. They're too cozy. We sit with a bunch of people who see the world as we do. If we sit in finance, we see things through the finance lens. If we sit, sit in HR, we see the world through the HR lens. And I'm always getting finance teams telling me they're the only ones that care about the business. No one else cares. Because otherwise, it wouldn't do these stupid things that they do. Meanwhile... HR's telling me, we're the only ones that care about the business. Everybody else is making stupid decisions because they don't care. They can't both be right. Everybody cares about the business, but they see the business through their own lens. And that is really bad for creativity. Because creativity can only occur when seemingly unrelated concepts collide. And that can't happen in a siloed organization because information and ideas are locked in disparate parts of the business. So leaders today have got to be obsessed with breaking down those silos. You've got to think like a CEO. And you're very lucky. Does anyone here have a team? Yeah. So some of you have teams, and some of you are, are in your role, but you don't have a team of people directly reporting into you. Yeah? And that's fine. It's irrelevant to whether you're a leader, whether you have a team or not. But those of you that don't have a team, actually really well-placed as well, to step back like a CEO does and see the organization as a whole, not just through the narrow lens of your function. So it's not only about breadth, it's about depth of perspective. Stepping back outside the organization and saying, what's going on in our industry? And how might that be impacting the decisions we made? Even further back, what's going on in the world? What's coming? Some of these trends I mentioned and some other stuff that will be unique to your industry. And how is that impacting our industry? And therefore, how will that impact our organization? And what can we do about that now? And you can't do that when you're in the narrow lens. So today's leaders have got to be hugely creative. Beyond that, this idea of being number one in your market, pretty old-fashioned. And the problem with it is you're so obsessed with being number one in the market that exists today, that you're not thinking about some disruptor that's coming up your blind side who's going to blow your industry apart. They don't care about being number one in your industry today. They're inventing a whole new industry. And while you're busy competing to be number one with today's players in your market, they're coming up to change everything. They don't care about the game you're playing. They're playing an entirely different game. And therefore, you've got to be willing to disrupt your own business and your own industry. And that might mean looking around at organizations that you might have perceived as competitors and now seeing them as partners. Because what truly drives this sort of organization is purpose. What are we really here to do? Are we here to be number one in our market? 
Not really. We're here to serve our customers, our clients, our society, our community, the world. That's what we're really here for. So I call it radical collaboration. Who do we need to collaborate with, even if we might have seen them as competitors in the past, in order to truly serve this client base? And we're much better able to do that together than in these silos where information and ideas is locked in these other organizations and we don't have access to them. Together, we're more powerful than we are separately. Not everyone will want to partner with you. Fine, they're still operating from an industrial age perspective, but some will. And then you'll be disrupting your industry. So this is the mindset we need to get out of depth of this is my function, this is my little bit. When I go to board meetings, I represent my little bit. And then this guy represents his and this lady represents hers. No. When I come to the board meeting, I'm representing our organization. I'm representing our people. I'm representing our customer and client base. And I've got a perspective that goes beyond this organization. And that is today's and tomorrow's leadership. And finally, I am the leader because I've got all the answers. <laughs> well, there are no right answers. It, I said before, it's the Wild West. No one knows what they're doing because we're operating in an environment we've never operated in before. So this relentless pursuit of right answers is what's keeping us locked in meetings week after week, month after month, only to emerge at the end, having made the decision that we knew was inevitable right at the beginning. Or that takes beautifully little radical ideas and either kills them prematurely with too much critique up here or dilutes them so much through this long, drawn-out process that when they pop out the other end, they're so bland, they fail anyway. We've got to have organizations that allow for new ideas. And not all of those ideas are going to come from you. Not, you cannot be the answers person. The challenges out there in the world are too complex and the solutions require too sophisticated for any one person to have the answers. So you can let go of that. You don't need to be the answers person. But you might need to be the questions person. What are the questions that you're asking? Are they the, are they the right questions? Are they the best questions? Are they eliciting the great ideas? Because you don't know what to do on your own and you don't know what to do on your own and you don't know. But together, you might. Together, you can work it out. And I think that this form of leadership requires much less ego than the form of leadership we had in the 80s and 90s when I started in my career, and certainly before that. You know, anyone that's here because it feels great and you're the boss and everybody does, you're probably already disappointed, right, because it's not how it is. It can't be about that. It's got to be about something more meaningful. It's got to be about serving some greater purpose and your own personal meaning for you and the people that you work with. And in that way, just before we open up, because I would love to get the questions in now, you know, for those of you at home, those of you sitting in this audience, start thinking now, what, do, what does this mean for me? What are the questions about how we can apply this in, in my organization, in my team? And we want to hear from you as well at home. But before I come to those questions, I just want to wrap up. But I think that I said that this was a brand new kind of leadership, but I, what I actually think is that it's an ancient kind of leadership and we lost our way a bit. And I want to finish with two quotes. The first is a quote from the Chinese philosopher Lao Tzu, who was writing about 2,000 years ago, who said, to lead people, walk beside them. As for the best leaders, they people do not notice their existence. And when the best leader's work is done, the people will say, we did it ourselves. That's the first quote, ancient. The other quote, you might have seen, my, my speech is called um, Punks in Suits. And this is swallowing the ego, by the way. Um, my, my speech is called Punks in Suits. And um, when I was, I wanted to bring my speech to life a few years ago, and I thought, oh, I'll use, I love superhero films, so I'll watch a lot of superhero films, and I'll, I'll kind of make analogies between the superheroes and the leaders. It was a big waste of time, because it turns out leadership in the real world is nothing like being a superhero, because the superheroes have their powers when they put on the suit, you know, and the mask, and we have our powers when we take all that off, right? It's kind of the opposite. But there are some amazing quotes in the superhero films, aren't there? And I love some of those, you know, with great, with great power comes great responsibility, all that sort of thing. I love all that. Um, and that's why my speech is called Punks in Suits. There's a, one of my favorite 
superhero films kick ass. Anyone know that film? Absolutely brilliant if you haven't seen it. Um, some great quotes in there. And there's a quote in there that has punks and suits in it. I actually think that in reality, the opposite is true than what they say in the film. So I'll give you the quote from the film and then I'll tell you what I really think. The quote in the film is, we don't need more punks in suits. We need some real heroes who really kick ass. Now, I think there's two kinds of punks. There's the sort of American style, you know, punk with a bad attitude. And then there's the true punks of the 70s who were disruptors and free thinkers and revealing, you know, challenging authority. So I think the, the quote should be, we don't need a bunch of heroes kicking ass, but we do need leaders who are willing to reveal a little bit of the punk underneath their suit. Thank you. So there you go. Blair's presentation landed really well with our audience. What did you think? If you want to join the conversation and take part in future events, I've left a link in the description. You can also subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to us on. That way, you won't miss an upload. Speaking of conversations, we're going to be using this channel to host a series of In Conversation With. These are episodes from members of the team and experts from across the industry. You can expect more insights and discussion around trends from across our industry and more. You're not going to want to miss it. Until then, bye for now.